Welcome to the Robert Lewis Sermons Podcast, a collection of sermons from Dr. Lewis during his time as teaching pastor at Fellowship Bible Church in Little Rock, Arkansas. We desire to see all who are Christ followers grow in faith and maturity through the use of this podcast. Here's this week's message. You know, in preparing this morning's message, I ran across a quote that I believe expresses the honest feelings of most Americans in our country today, and I would put myself uh, with these. It reads this way, the only way to be at peace with abortion is not to think about it at any depth. You know, there's a lot of truth there. Because when you begin to think about it, it becomes compelling, it becomes uncomfortable, it becomes, to a large extent, incomprehensible. 55 million abortions in our world this year. 1.5 million abortions and more in America this year. That reduces down to 177 an hour or three every minute. Abortion for everyone is a disturbing, gut-wrenching issue that just gnarls our stomach up when we even hear the mention of the word. And it has polarized the minority of Americans into either a pro-choice or a pro-life position while driving the majority of us Americans caught in the middle into what I call some kind of collective denial where the less said, (laughs) quite frankly, the better. Emotions, in fact, run so high that there's little, if any, instructive or constructive interaction between people. Uh, For instance, A year ago this spring, I had the privilege of speaking to the senior law class at the University of Arkansas here in Little Rock. We talked on a number of moral issues, but when the issue of abortion came up, uh, one female student shouted at me. She said, you know, we're just not going to agree on this, so let's don't talk about it. And she turned her back to me. And then there was just uh, deathly silence. And I said, well, you know, I don't agree. I think there are things that we could probably learn from each other and we need to talk. But no one wanted to talk that day. So we moved on. And so the public debate falls in many ways into the same category of what is in fact one of the most central moral issues of our day. And yet it stays at a very surface, a very superficial level. It's constricted to a place where all you hear about is either the rights of women on one hand or the rights of millions of unborn children on the other hand. Two subjects, women and children, that for centuries went together well. They were comfortable with one another. They fit like hand and glove. And yet now in our world, in this bold new world that's coming upon us, they find themselves presented as irreconcilable enemies where the only solution is to be found in death. All of this has left our country in a very confused, somewhat self-contradictory position at times. From our president on down, who one day told me personally when I sat in his office when he was governor, he told me face to face that he felt like abortion was the taking of innocent human life. And then when he became president, quoted in the paper, he says, quote, that he considers abortion almost always wrong. And yet in saying that, he turns right around to the thunderous applause of many and signs the most sweeping pro-abortion legislation, fetal tissue research legislation ever. But you know what? He's only a reflection of ourselves. We, the American public, in like manner, have consistently told the pollsters that we're disturbed by abortion, we don't like abortion, we wish abortion would go away, but then we vote for laws and legislators who will give us the right to have them. Will we ever think straight? Will we ever make sense of this issue that plagues us today? You know, quite frankly, I think the answer is no as long as we seek to avoid the issue or float on what I call the rootless rhetoric that is paraded before us by a substantially biased media. 90% according to one pollster who says to us that most of that 90% would favor abortion on demand at any time. Abortion is not going to go away. Turning your head, hiding your eyes, isn't going to make it less prevalent. It will be in the 90s even more prevalent. 
and it will spawn new and more sinister ethical issues as it does. So it's time we do think about it. Several years ago, I had the privilege of speaking to the church on abortion. It was early 80s. No one in our congregation wanted to talk about it. I stood here solo with an absolutely quiet audience that kept their eyes down through the entire sermon. But times have changed here. But new, new people have joined our ranks, and you may be one of those new people who have you not had the privilege of just talking it through with us. And you may be pro-choice, you may have good ideas that you think are sound, and all I would like is the privilege of presenting to you a reasoned other position. Why is it that the right to an abortion consistently is held up as essential to women? It's a good question. And what are the driving forces behind abortion? I'd like to mention three that I think are preeminent and explain to you why I think they are. The first, and it's on your outline, is radical feminism. Now, when I say radical feminism, I mean that, that oftentimes there is a philosophy that goes far beyond just the right of women to have fairness, justice, and equality. And even as I say that, of all people, it should be the church who are for women and for their equality, for their justice, and for fairness, whether it be in the marketplace or at home. But radical feminism goes far beyond fairness and justice. Radical feminism is, in fact, a humanistic face in feminine form that seeks to abolish any distinction between male and female. And rather than seeking just justice and fairness, it seeks sameness. And let me tell you, sameness is a far cry from fairness. And it encompasses a much broader spectrum of life. For most feminists, sameness means not so much attacking the vices of a male-dominated society, such as careerism at the expense of family, self-indulgence, sexual adventurism, or the lack of obligation to spouse and family. Quite the contrary. Sameness means being able to have those vices as my own. Radical autonomy is the ultimate objective of radical feminism. Self-fulfillment without restraint, without obligation, without duty, without real responsibility is the aim of so many feminists. They don't want just the virtues of men. They want what every man has, virtues and vices. And it reminds me, almost in a flashback, to the opening chapters of the book of Genesis, when the woman stood in the garden, positioned there as God had created her to be, but for whatever reasons that we don't understand, uncomfortable with the position God had established her in, and therefore was open to the seductive influences of the tempter who said, not that you can have it fair. That wasn't the argument at all. Remember? Genesis 3.5. You can be the same. Let me quote it to you. You can be like God. Now in the 1990s, the cry is not so much that, but from radical feminism, it's you can be like the man. Whatever he has, you can have. Whatever he does, you can do. There's no qualification on any of that. But at the heart of it is even spurring my biological destiny as a woman. It comes into play in all this debate, and that is where abortion enters in. Children, to many feminists, is not a, an ability. It's a disability to be able to conceive. One feminist said it this way, and I'm quoting, women are disadvantaged from birth by the ability to conceive. Women must be freed from their ability to conceive if they are to have the same adventures of life as men. As one Planned Parenthood ad stated in Ms. Magazine, it said, and I'm quoting, abortion makes all other rights for women possible. Therefore, for women who, feminists would say, have been oppressed for centuries by a male-dominated society, they discover that they can only be liberated by becoming just like the people they accuse. 
And that is, they become oppressors themselves. Except in this case, of the smallest members of the human community. A second driving force is what I would call sexual liberation without consequences. And though this could be included under radical feminism, I think it deserves special recognition. You know, there's a lot of debate and discussion in our schools about sex education, but I want you to know, we are totally hoodwinked if we believe the reason abstinence is so poopod in public schools and neglected is because sex educators believe that kids are just gonna do it anyway. I mean, that's the, the response when abstinence is ever brought up as an idea. You know, that's fine and all that, and that's kind of religious, but kids are gonna do that anyway. Abstinence is not the issue. Not of sexual educators, the real pioneers. Because to them, they believe in their heart of hearts that sex between kids and youth and consenting adults at any age is a virtue. It's to be sought. The concern is only for the negative consequences which need to be eradicated. Let me give you an illustration. A number of months ago, I was watching uh, Firing Line. You know, sometimes it's just good to watch guys go at each other a little bit. And on this particular evening, it was Gary Bauer. And I happen to know Gary Bauer. He's with the Family Research Council in Washington, uh, an arm of focus on the family. And he was debating, and I wish I could remember her name, but she was an educator. She was employed by the U.S. government in regards to sex education. And it was real obvious from their dialogue that they personally knew one another. And they were talking about the pros and cons of sex education in schools and of pamphlets and all that. But they got on this abstinence issue, and she really went after Gary at that being a religious idea. But in the midst of that discussion, he turned to her and he said, you know, I think it's important that you tell us what you believe. And she says, and he said to her, he said, you know, I want you to express to the, the viewing public here, is it right, is it moral for my 12-year-old son to have sex, sexual intercourse with your 11-year-old daughter? And there was quiet. And you could see thinking going on there and she began to say, well, you know, Gary, that's not really the issue here. He said, no, no, that is the issue. Because behind that comes all of the decision-making about what students will and can see and hear and be instructed in. And so he kept pressing her. And I thought it was very interesting that for the next five to six minutes, he just wouldn't let her off. She kept trying to move around and he wouldn't let her off. He said, tell them, tell them whether you believe it. And after a period of time came a very reluctant yes. See, I think that is very instructive for us today. It may be helpful to know that Margaret Sanger, maybe some of you don't know Margaret Sanger, but she is the founder and much revered patron saint of Planned Parenthood. In her day, she was far more open about what she stood for. It wasn't veiled as so many things are today to hoodwink the American public. Sanger denounced monogamous marriage with one partner, and I'm quoting her now, as a degenerate institution for women. Indeed, she touted voluntary associations between sexual partners, the kind that is paraded today with certain feminist leaders like now President Patricia Ireland, who has, you know, a husband on one side, and a lesbian lover on another side, and she represents the model for the, uh, for the modern progressive woman of today. Freedom to do anything I want with anyone. That's Margaret Sanger's philosophy. And there she is modeling it as a head of a national organization for women. Margaret Sanger viewed birth control and abortion as methods that were necessary for sexual liberty among women. In her 1914 periodical, Woman Rebel, she set forth her feminist credo, and I'm quoting, she says, a woman's right is to live, to love, to be lazy, to be an unwed mother, to create, and to destroy. That's her right. And today, the philosophy is sexual liberation without consequences, that's what students are hearing. And that's why wherever sex education moves in of that kind, 
Now there's another kind, and kids need a certain measure of sexual education. But where that kind moves in, sexual activity rockets. It increases, and we know that. We see it everywhere in our statistics. Why? Because students aren't stupid. They're not stupid. They hear it. They get the little innuendos, the inflections. Any orator knows what he says and the way he says it, both are equal. His ethos and his logos, they come in equal proportions as an orator. And students catch on to the libertarian philosophy behind the charts and the information and the color diagrams. They catch on to all of that. And then they go out and catch on to something else too. My point is this. Abortion is only a means to an end in the brave new world. Sexual liberation without consequences is the objective. And it's high on the bold new world agenda. And then briefly, thirdly, is population control. You know, I have heard many people who are pro-choice say, whether they're religious leaders or secular figures, that they hate the fact that abortion is used so much for po population control, birth control, basically. But that's the primary way, quite frankly, that it is used. Both personally, where a person may say, a family may say, we just can't afford another child. This, is, this will disrupt our lifestyle at this particular time, all the way to something more darker when they say, you know, I don't, I don't want another girl. But it's also used nationally and internationally. Many believe it's a quick fix answer to crowded areas of the world and even to certain undesirable people groups in controlling you know, uh, their propagation. Government-sponsored abortion is a big thing around the world. I remember when my daughter and I were touring Beijing, China, and as we traveled around that city, there were all over the city these huge blue signs with a mom and dad and one baby. And underneath were the words, one family, one child. See, China is not pro-choice. China is no choice. That's where they are. And after you have your first kid, anything additional, it's mandated state-enforced abortion. I say that because population control, well, there's all kinds of figures and facts, and I don't understand how much of all that is true or not true, but I do want you to know population control is a driving force behind promoting, and if necessary, mandating abortion in the future. So these are the three forces, radical feminism, sexual liberation without consequences, population control. That's what we see today that's driving abortion behind the scenes. So what about abortion itself? You know, let me turn and talk to that just for a moment because it is interesting how few people, remember the majority of people in America are in the muddled middle not wanting to hear or think about this issue. Just like today, there's some of you out here saying, I'll be glad when this is over, okay? But we've had people join our church and they've got opinions, they've got thoughts, but they can't tie it all together because they've never heard somebody just set forth a reasoned presentation from one side and then go get the other. So you can make a reasoned conclusion. Few of us have thought through the facts. And when you don't think through the facts, it's so easy to be for someone you can see. Her rights, her privacy, her body, and her freedom. And to easily, out of sight, out of mind, dispel that which you can't see. And that the media will not let you see. No movement, no matter how worthy, whether it be for women, for rights, for sexual freedom, for managing the resources of this planet in some acceptable way, no movement can find legitimacy as a movement when that means the indiscriminate slaughter of innocent human life. And then that begs the question, when is human life human life? Is the fetus a human being endowed as well as the declaration of independence of these United States set forth, endowed by the Creator with certain unalienable rights. Among these, life, liberty, the pursuit of happiness. To answer that question, I want you to turn first to science on your outline. And you know, as we do, let me make an important distinction between three agencies, and I want to mention this for you to think about in the future. 
in the debate are basically three agencies. Science, the church, and the state. Each have a distinct role. Science deals primarily with facts, truth that can be known, documented, and tested. The church deals with faith, truths that can be intrinsically known, can be felt, can be known as innately right, but cannot be necessarily proved through science. And then the government, the state that deals primarily with rights. No matter how science or the church conclude, it's the state that confers legal rights in a society for that truth to be expressed. The reason that's important is because it's important when you listen to people talk, including yourself, that you keep these three distinct because when they cross lines, people get confused. For instance, when the Supreme Court justices handed down Roe versus Wade in 73, they were not dealing with the scientific evidence of when human life begins, but with where in the process of that life development that it could be given the legal rights of personhood. Now they chose a moment called viability, but they said, now we're gonna confer as the state the legal rights of personhood. But that was a legal procedure. That was not scientific facts. And it's important to keep those distinct because when you hear the word person, you think they're saying, well, that means that's when human life begins. And a lot of people said, well, viability is when human life begins. The Supreme Court said it so. No, the Supreme Court just simply said, that's when we believe we can confer the legal rights of personhood. For instance, when Sandra Kurjak told the governor's school students a fetus was nothing more than a blob in the belly, she was dealing with her faith, not with facts. Because science tells us it's not just a blob in the belly. When I was talking with a reformed rabbi, we were having a, a discussion on the issue of abortion. He quoted some ancient Jewish tradition that said that the fetus is nothing more than an appendage in a mother's body like tonsils or an appendix. Now that's not all Jewish tradition. In fact, I think that's a very minor select view of Jewish tradition. But nonetheless, he's dealing in faith, not scientific facts. Because as I told him, I said, but Rabbi, don't you know that that uh, the moment an egg, and, I mean, a, a sperm and an egg come together, it forms a distinctly unique genetic organism unlike the mother entirely. It's not just an appendage. And see, at that point, when you have faith and scientific facts, you've got to make a decision because I believe Christianity should be at least in harmony with that which can absolutely be known in science. To not be so borders on fanaticism. And that's why Jesus did things, miracles and stuff. He wanted to demonstrate, not just for people to believe mindly, blindly, but to believe what he said that he could demonstrate it. And I think anytime Christianity goes against that which is absolutely clear in science, we border on stupidity, not faith. Or how about when the National Abortion Rights Action League published a pamphlet that said, I'm quoting, personhood at conception is a religious belief not a provable biological fact. Now listen, that's so confusing. Personhood is a religious belief. No, it isn't. Personhood is a legal state. It's something conferred by the state. It can't be proven at any time by science. Just ask any black person in 1855. They lived, they breathed, they laughed, they loved, but the state did not confer on them personhood, full personhood. So they were less than full personhood. And so what I would say is that personhood is a legal act, not a religious belief. But see how all that gets confusing? Now I say all that because it comes back to the question, when does life begin? When does science, and I'm just going to carve out now that one stream, science, take out some mystical point, some spiritual moment that theologians would want to interject when in the womb, you know, uh, God grants personhood to the, to the fetus and take out the state subjectively declaring, as the Supreme Court did in 73, that viability somehow gave this living material the status a personhood. Take those two away, deal only with the facts, and science will clearly proclaim, it will shout, it will scream at the American public that the only place human life 
can be documented as beginning is at the moment of conception. There is no other place along the continuum of life that you have a break with the mother and the father as these two cells that represent them genetically in every other way come together in this moment of wonderment, this miraculous, inspirational, incredible moment where it suddenly becomes in this union a distinct organism, genetically different than mother or father, with all the code, with all the information, it could fill libraries of this life from that point on till the day it takes his or her last breath. It's not at implantation of the egg in the uterine raw at five to nine days. It's not at the attainment of some recognizable human form at eight weeks or at quickening when mom feels the baby moving around at four or five months or at viability when it can live outside the womb, though medical science has pushed that way back, nor at the birth canal when the baby begins to move down the canal, that somehow in some magical moment, something additional is added to make it now human. There is no such moment that can be remotely compared to the miracle of the moment of conception. All of science says that. Where this unique, one-of-a-kind, genetically distinct human being is created, and I believe endowed with certain unalienable rights. Over the next nine months, all that happens, all that happens is it just gets older, bigger, and more complex. And let me say this, that doesn't stop when it gets outside the womb, as any parent of a teenager can tell you, right? It just gets bigger, older, and more complex. And it goes on till the day we die. Now, I could list pages of research, scholars, scientists, and doctors who would say what I just said. I've listed just two. One, Landrum Shettles, who's the pioneer of sperm biology, it's, this is not a Christian statement. This is just a guy who uh, is an expert in an area of medicine, and he says, I oppose abortion. Why? I do so because I accept what is biologically manifest. Notice his conclusion. My position is scientific, pragmatic, humanitarian. Then I've quoted Dr. Jerome Lejeunet of fundamental genetics. He was the discoverer of the chromosome patterns of Down syndrome, one of the leading experts in the world in genetics. Several times he's been called to America to testify at trials, at Senate subcommittee meetings on when human life begins. That's his quote. He says, after fertilization, that is conception has taken place, a new human being has come into being. It is not my opinion. It is the teaching of all the genetics that I was given. There's no doubt it's a human being. Now, I can tell you some other testimony he said. He said at that point before the subcommittee, he said, now, whether it has rights or not is not my field. Whether it's a person, the law has to decide. But I'm going to tell you, if any of my students walked into my class and looked at a zygote or a five-day-old cell structure and said, that's not a human being, I'd throw them out of the class. It is a human being. Now here's what's amazing. Now I'm gonna give you a little insight. Do you know that pro-choice leaders have basically conceded that fact? See, I bet none of you do. But they have conceded that fact that human life begins at conception. That the new conceived entity is human life. They've conceded that. They avoid any debate on when human life begins, like the plague. Notice, you never see anything on TV about that, radio, magazine. They don't debate it. They stay away from it. Instead, they have shifted their focus. Now, here's where what I said in the beginning comes into play. They've shifted their focus to personhood. And see, most of us out there, when we hear them talk in person, we're thinking when human life begins. They think human life begins here. They're not talking about that. When they start talking personhood, they want you to think that. But what they're talking about are legalities state conclusions on when this entity has rights in the United States. And they would argue that a woman's legal right to self-determination takes precedent over a human being in the womb that they know to be a human being, but who they also know is vulnerable legally. If that sounds a little sinister, 
It is. It's cold. It's calculating. It's murderous. It's the pursuit of a philosophy that ignores what science can document because I have to have my self-fulfillment. I must be the same. Now that's kind of taking you behind the veil of an argument you hear very little about. I believe what we're approaching is 20th century child sacrifice of the Molech kind, of the Baal kind. When we know the facts, and we're going to still sacrifice. Except in the days of Molech, it was the dad who took his newborn infant and stuck it on those hot, fiery hands to roast his child to the gods. Now, of all people, it's a woman. Well, what does the Scripture say? And here we must deal with faith, not facts so much, not truths of personhood that science can document, but equally true, which science does not contradict. As I pointed out, faith and science, there's a certain relationship that they must keep. Keeps religion becoming fanatical, and religion keeps science from becoming barbaric. Old Testament scholar Meredith Klein observes this, and I'm quoting him. He says, the most significant thing about abortion when we look into the Bible and look into the legislation of biblical law is that there is none. There's no statement on abortion in the Bible. It was so unthinkable, he says, that an Israelite woman should desire an abortion that there was no need to mention this offense in the Old Testament criminal code. All that was necessary to prohibit abortion for centuries was just simply the command, you shall not murder. Every Israelite woman and man knew that the preborn child was a sacred human being. And if you'll notice on your outline, I've just given you a few excerpts from Scripture so we can move quickly through these. But from the very first chapter of Genesis, here is God doing something unique with man as male and female. He's embossing His very image into their lives. He's giving something of Himself to them so that they could enjoy fellowship with Him for an eternity. And it's in that image that they become the highest of God's creation, the most sacred of God's creation. The psalmist looks up in the sky in wonderment and says, Who is man that thou might take thought of him? And then he says, You, God, have made him just a little lower than yourself. If you look around this room, you'll see people who have a very unique eternity ahead of them. Because you've been embossed with the very image of God that he wants to fully reclaim in eternity. And it's this that sets man apart from every other creature. And it's this that makes him sacred and with the policy, hands off. That's why when, the, when Moses comes down with the Ten Commandments, the Sixth Commandment says, you shall not murder. You shall not take innocent, not you shall not kill, you shall not murder innocent human life. You can't extinguish that. It's wrong and I forbid it. And then as you go on in the Mosaic Law, as it fleshes out what that means, you find the law of retribution. It's listed there in Leviticus. It says, if any human being, or if any man or woman takes any human being's life, I underline the word any, his life shall be taken. He'll, she, he shall be executed for his crimes because only the taking of the life that took him or her can demonstrate the absolute sacredness of that kind of life. Now, you know that extends even to unborn children? Now, here's the key verse. Look at it on your outlines. It's in Exodus. I've put it there for you, Exodus 21. It says, And if men struggle with each other, this is the Mosaic Law, and strike a woman with child, and I've quoted the literal Hebrew here, so that her children come out. If you look in your Bibles, most Bibles will say she's being struck and she has a miscarriage. But I've looked at a number of Old Testament scholars this week. If you've got a Ryrie study Bible, he agrees with what I'm about to say. I had a personal interaction with Walter Kaiser of Trinity Seminary in Chicago over this. He looked me in the eye and said, no, it doesn't mean miscarriage. The word that's used there is of children, normal children coming out of the mom after being struck. In the very next chapter, Moses used the word for miscarriage. He has that in his vocabulary, but doesn't use it here. He just says, literally, the children come out. In other words, there's not a miscarriage, there's just premature birth. So if these men are striking around a woman, which they know they shouldn't do, and she gets involved or gets injured so that it causes a premature birth, then probably a fine is going to be levied on the guy who struck her. 
because of the sacredness of that life. And it came prematurely, though healthy, but it caused some discomfort and inconvenience. But I want you to know what it says in the very next verse. It says, but if there is any further injury, and it's a, um, it's a verb there that's, that's uh, used for obviously the, the woman or the child. It's an indefinite verb, which means when it's indefinite, not specific, it encompasses all that's just been said. If there's any further injury, and then I'd add kind of in parentheses, mother or child, notice the law of retribution. You shall appoint as a penalty life for life. Now that made perfect sense to an Israelite because all through the scriptures, he sees God talking to the people in the womb like they were full human beings with full rights of personhood. He talks to different prophets. I knew you in the womb. I spoke to you in the womb. I consecrated you from the womb. Look at Jeremiah there, 1.5. Here's the Lord speaking at the very beginning of the book of Jeremiah. Before you, Jeremiah, were born, that is in the womb, I consecrated you. I came to you and set my hands upon you and consecrated you to be a prophet to the nations. When you get to the New Testament, as you open up, with the miraculous presentation of the Messiah, the angel says, Behold, the virgin shall be with child. And let me tell you, it was, it was well within the grasp of, of any of these writers to use other words like potential life material or fetus or something else. But they chose a word that expressed full personhood of Jesus. And how can we not think that? How can we think that the incarnation of the living Word, Jesus Christ, occurred seconds before the baby popped out of the birth canal? That that's when suddenly God of heaven disrobed, dismantled His divine rights and suddenly jumped into time and space. No. And we recite that very truth in our creeds, don't we? Like the Apostles' Creed. I believe in God the Father Almighty maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, His only Son, our Lord, who was what? Conceived by the Holy Spirit. He was conceived, not it was conceived. Not there was stuff put there that would later blossom. He was conceived of the Holy Spirit, then born of the Virgin Mary. And then I love this statement that in Luke Chapter 1, when Elizabeth, who's six months pregnant with John the Baptist, comes and meets Mary, who's six months pregnant with Jesus, and as they approach one another, it says, the baby leaped in her womb for joy, recognizing in some mystical way the Messiah in the other womb to whom He would give His allegiance in His life, but even now in the womb was serving. Is that tissue or is those persons? And again, this can't be proved, but we're in the area now of faith. At the close of the New Testament age, the church began to fan out across the Roman Empire. And as it did, it began to convert pagans all over the Roman Empire who, who saw abortion as, as an easy option. Abortion was rampant in the first century. I don't know if you know that. Pick up any history book and read about family life in the first century, and you will find women moving into the workplace, just like they're doing today, women not wanting to have their figure or beauty harmed by childbearing or, the, or in a sense, the inconvenience of raising children because they had other things they wanted to do. And so most Roman women had four, five, six abortions in a lifetime. It was rampant all over the Roman Empire. And as the early church fanned out across that empire, it eventually did have to address abortion specifically because these new converts did not have the legacy like they did in the area of Palestine, that Jewish legacy of the sacredness of human life. As you moved into Ephesus and Corinth and Rome, these people didn't know what you're talking about. They didn't have that Jewish heritage. They just knew what they did in order to be free. And so... The holy fathers of the early church had to address it. And address it they did. I've listed some of the major church statements that come right out of the second century. We're talking shortly after the apostolic age ends. For instance, the epistle of Barnabas. You shall love your neighbor as your own life. That's what Jesus said. But then he adds, you shall not slay a child by abortion. You shall not kill that which has already been generated. The didache that you see there is simply the Greek word teaching. It was a second century teaching manual for young converts. When they came to Christ, they would say, you know, you've got a new lifestyle ahead of you. And 
We're going to walk you through this. And this manual is, is one of the great historic documents of the church because it tells in very specific detail how the early church discipled men and women who were new converts to Christ. And in this instruction manual, it says, do not murder a child by abortion or kill a newborn infant. Things that were happening all around them all the time. Clement, a church leader, says those who use abortifacient medicines to hide their fornication cause not only the outright murder of the fetus, but the whole human race as well. And Tertullian says it does not matter whether you take away a life that is born or destroy one coming to the birth. In both instances, destruction is murder. This historical documentation is so prevalent at our fingertips for anybody who wants to research it that Dr. Bruce Metzger, the world-renowned New Testament scholar, just simply summarizes it. He says, it is really remarkable how uniform and how pronounced was the early Christian opposition to abortion. Now, let me tell you why I gave you this. I gave you this information because many people who are in churches today get confused about their conclusion of abortion. They see church leaders, church denominations, who have signed on to the roles of abortion rights and pro-choice movements, and, and they, they hear all kinds of different stuff like personhood and human life, and they get confused, and they think, at least from a religious standpoint, that it's some kind of toss-up. That's just kind of, well, we're really not going to know, so you can just simply pick one church or the other. Just like in science, we really don't know when human life begins, so you can just pick one or the other. Let me tell you, in the area of science I've told you, there is no debate. None. Unless you want to add something mystically along that process. There's no debate when human life begins. Now, whether it's a person, either the state decides or your religion decides. And we've got a lot of church leaders say, well, I think a woman ought to have a right to an abortion. But let me tell you, they speak. And when they speak, they do not speak with all this historical Christian documentation and all this scripture backing them up. It is so important that you hear that. When those leaders speak, they are speaking in a way that they have chosen to break with the authority of Holy Scripture. They have chosen to sever their ties with the long-standing traditions of the historic Christian church. And for many of them, they have repudiated the very founders of their denomination in order that they may crawl after a degenerate culture and affirm the guilty and betray the innocent. But don't think they've got a large body of information that they're drawing upon when they sign on to the pro-choice movement. They do not. Now, I want you to research it for yourself if you have questions there. But you're not going to find anything different than what I just told you. Then finally, if abortion is right, then there should be the ability of a woman to have an abortion and to feel good about herself. But just the opposite happens. In fact, you find a growing number of women who suffer from post-abortion syndrome. They have these traumatic flashbacks of the day they were in the abortion clinic, of this unrelenting guilt that continues to stay with them over a lifetime with thoughts like, you know, if I hadn't aborted my young son, He'd be, he'd be ready to go to first grade right now. You know, I'd be dressing him up for soccer. And then you have to put that out of your mind. I have personally counseled a number of women from our body where they've called me and made an appointment and come in and then fallen into tears and grief and sobbing to talk about a moment in time five years, 10 years, 15 years ago where they committed an abortion with the encouragement of the people around them. And with all that support, the guilt has been heavy on their life. And they've had to steer this way and that way. And every time they're in a church and they hear the word abortion, they wince and they have to put up all kinds of defense mechanisms. They steer clear of the issue. They don't want to talk about, but they feel those flashbacks and that haunting, oppressive, relenting reminders in their life. And it hurts them. And they don't find themselves free at all. They find themselves in prison to themselves. That's why it's interesting that over the last few years, 200 chapters 
of women exploited by abortion have sprung up across the United States. They're dying. But then, doesn't Paul say the wages of sin is death? Now, you may think, and some probably do, that, well, it's easy for you to say that because you're talking about women who are in your church. They've been preconditioned to this. You've spoken to them. So you're kind of the one that's haunting their conscience. So let me just take for a moment and let me go to the furthest end of the spectrum of those people who would be radically pro-choice, and that is the abortion providers themselves. I have to give credit to this to one of the doctors in our church who came up and handed me an American Medical Association newspaper that goes out to doctors all across the United States every week. And in the July 12, 1993 issue, there was an article that he showed me entitled, Abortion Providers Share Their Inner Conflicts, Their Own Conscience. Now I'm just going to read it to you. It'll speak for itself. It says, the notion that the nurses, doctors, counselors, and others who work in the abortion field have qualms about the work they do is a well-kept secret. But among themselves at work or at meetings with other providers, they talk about how they really feel. About women who come in for repeat abortions. About women whose reasons for having abortions aren't ones they consider valid. About their anger towards women who wait until late in their pregnancies to have elective abortions. And finally, about their feelings that they have towards the fetus, especially as gestational age increases. They wonder if the fetus really feels pain. They talk about the soul and where it goes and about the dreams that they have as providers, which seems universal among them, in which aborted fetuses stare at them in their dreams with ancient eyes and perfectly shaped hands and feet asking, why, why, why did you do this to me? Oddly enough, many of the issues that disturb abortion foes also seem to trouble the providers. One counselor for Kansas said, this may sound like repression on my part, but it does work for me. When I find myself identifying with a fetus and I think the larger it gets, that it's a normal person then I have to think it's okay to consciously decide and remind ourselves to identify with the woman. The external criteria of viability really isn't what it's all about. It's an unwanted pregnancy, and that's the bottom line. A nurse who had worked in an abortion clinic for less than a year said her most troubling moments came not in the procedure room, but afterwards, just after these women had had abortions, and they would lie in the recovery room and cry, I've just killed my baby. I've just killed my baby. The nurse told the group, I don't know what to say to these women. Maybe they're right. All in all, it helps when the staff can sit down and say things to one another. Like one man who said, yeah, that's what disturbed me. It's about seeing that little face. I know I'm not going to burn in hell, but I'm still kind of concerned about how all this fits together. That's from the other side. Conscience, Scripture, science, these are facts of life in the bold new world we're entering. Is there something you can do? You know, I want you to know you can. You can make a big difference. It'll always be one-to-one -one with people if our world will ever change. And there are a number of you who can be a brave new church hero. A very simple thing you can do, and I'll just show it to you, is get this book. Pro-life answers to pro-choice arguments. It's a very reasoned, non-emotional, factually-based, well-researched and documented book that will help you ask questions you've never thought about but give you unbelievable answers with the support behind it. And for those of you who have teenagers in high school or in college or whatever, this is a must because all around them, this is taking place like it's no big deal and they know it is, but they don't know how to answer. And I want you to know they can answer well to their professors, to their friends, to their students, to their classmates, if you get them this book. This is a great book by Randy Alcorn. It's the best I've ever read, and I want you to know it's available now in the, in the, the Christian bookstores around the city. A second thing that you can do is speak out for the unborn at every opportunity you get. And I say that because I was pleasantly surprised when John Leo of Time Magazine, of all places, made this statement. He said that he believes the pro-life argument will eventually win because truth ultimately rests in their camp. 
That's a great admission, and I believe that will happen, no matter how dark it may appear to you. But each of us must speak out in our school, to our teachers. Now, we need facts. We can't just be, you know, getting emotional about it. But we need to hammer on the truth because it's all there for us. And as Psalm 82 says in your outline, we need to defend the cause of the weak and the fatherless. And if that means at school, if that means being indignant, so be it. Let them see your passion. Ask them how they can prove it's not a human being and they'll flee because I've done it. They don't know how to answer that question. They just want to jump back to the rhetoric. But at least stand up or pull a lever for a vote or do something, but don't pass those opportunities by that you get with your friends. Thirdly, encourage women with unwanted pregnancies to seek the alternative of adoption, which many call the loving option, and I think it is. You know, I always get a little teary at this point because there's somewhere out there, there's this little boy and he's out there kind of being a delight to his mom and dad, filling their hearts with joy and the sense of expectation. And he's become a very special kid to me. In fact, if you come into my office at any time, you'll see his little picture up. This is one of the ones that was sent to me of him. He's a cute little thing, but the reason he's so special is because he bears my name. He's named Robert. And the reason he's named Robert, because that was his birth mom's gift to me for spending time with her, helping her work through to get to a place where she would bless another life. It's one of my greatest trophies. You can have that same impact if you just step out and speak out. And then lastly, some of you in this year of transition might consider thinking about in the future a common cause group. You might really have a, a burning desire here and you want to focus on positive alternatives, maybe helping unwed mothers or maybe doing volunteer help. There are a lot of agencies that could use your help. The Arkansas Crisis Pregnancy Center, they need volunteers to meet with women and give them personal attention. Uh, maybe working with Bethany Christian Services, our local adoption agency, which we help found here as a church, they need your support. But there's a place for all of this. There's a place to be a hero in a world that's bold, but ever barbaric. Thank you for listening to the Dr. Robert Lewis Sermon Podcast. If you were encouraged by this message, please rate and review this podcast. In addition, share this with your friends and community. This podcast was produced by the team at Sound of a Rose. You can learn more about the team at soundofarose.com.